0: How's it going? My name's Andy, and welcome to Water's Edge Church. The question we ask as an icebreaker today during our fellowship time is, who's someone that was there for you in a specific difficulty or trial? What was going on in your life, and how did that person show you Jesus? I think it's a really important question. As we continue a series that we started last week, the series is entitled, When the Dust Settles, How the Messiah, our King Jesus, Journeys with the Other. And some of the premise of the series is that we recognized it's the midpoint between uh, the presidential election, this one in 2020, and then subsequently the next one in 2024. And so it feels like somewhat of a non anxious time socially, the calm before the potential storm. But as followers of Jesus, we're called consistently and faithfully to be non anxious. And when difficulties and differences arise between us and others, when anxiety begins to brew again, the question of this series is how do we enter in in love? How do we enter in calmly and faithfully in love? Our last series focused in the book of Matthew on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talking about what the kingdom of God looks like, what it means to be salt and light. This next section of scripture, Matthew 8-10, through looks like what Jesus' kingdom, what Jesus' authority uh, looks like in real time? What does it look like for this kingdom teaching to be put into practice? What does Jesus' authority look like on a street level? Last week we talked about our socio-political other. and How do we love them well? And the principle of that message and the principle of the series really is this idea of connection before correction. That when differences arise or even difficulties arise we want to communicate love and value for the relationship before any correction whether that's a rebuke before any honest conversations before mutual reciprocity before we even apologize we want to connect with others first and, and in that conversation we talked about how connecting means learning other people's stories so that we can begin to have an understanding of why they believe what they believe and in that mutual reciprocity, there may be an opportunity to share what you believe and why you believe. That was the socio-political other. This week we're looking at those leaving the church, those leaving the church. Someone that I know pretty well, a friend of a friend, recently stated these words, I am good with God, but not sure what to do with Jesus. Now, this person and their spouse were raised in a church. They were missionaries abroad. They, they were faithfully outspoken about their love for Jesus and have close friends in their life who encourage their walk with Jesus. What else is clear is that this person and their spouse had a recent painful experience with the church. I heard they were highly committed and served wholeheartedly and as a result, desired higher levels of leadership, but somehow found barriers to that with no real explanation of said barriers. Now, this is them and their side of the story for sure. Are there issues with the church? Very likely. Could there be issues with this couple's? Probably. I believe what's sad is that it can feel somewhat irredemptive. Uh, something that likely could have been a growth opportunity for both the leaders of that church and Uh, this person, this couple, has taken a very sour turn. My hope in it, and I take a lot of joy, is that this person who stated, I'm good with God but not sure about Jesus, still has people in her life, close friends, that love her and love Jesus and have committed to faithfully walk with her. Now, as we think of that situation, I want to pan out and recognize that there's a bit of decline that's happened in the Western evangelical church. It's seen a significant drop in people's participation. Several surveys have demonstrated this reality and and the measurable typically is Sunday attendance and Sunday attendance doesn't necessarily signify what the church is, but it is symbolic. It is symbolic, it is a reason why we gather together. And rather than go through all the statistics, this is helpful to know Personally that in our sending church, we saw this decline happen. It was a later decline. It began in 2015 where our attendance was large. It was uh, 1,500 to 1,700 people at its peak. That's a Sunday and then through five years, it decreased year after year to about 500 people. Then the pandemic hit. And I've heard statistics about the pandemic One that most people agree upon is that whatever your participation, again, likely your Sunday attendance was prior to February 2020-ish, many churches are experiencing one-third of that. They have one-third of the people that were there prior to the pandemic. Again, February 2020-ish. And so what happened? Well, one-third are um, not doing anything anymore. Um, One third are online and potentially waiting to come back. I believe some of that third have moved on to maybe other local churches. And then one third, of course, is in the community. And a great note about that latter one third is, it's actually created a a stronger core among uh, that local congregation. Still, you gotta ask the question, why? Why, what do you think happened? What is going on with this decline? Well, there's a lot of thoughts, a lot of opinions about this, a lot of opinions about Sundays themselves, church and this focus on Sundays. It's a production, it's consumeristic. There seems to be somewhat of a celebrity culture when it comes to pastors and lead pastors. Um, When the focus is so much on Sundays, there's not next steps, clear next steps in the community. And then when people focus on Sundays, they talk about music, And teaching, teaching being too topical and not grounded in scripture, theological focuses. Um, Some people just feel unseen. They didn't feel welcome or seen, didn't have a place. Maybe they felt like their life stage didn't have a place for them or kids or their growing age or their singleness. And then as I mentioned, there's leadership issues. Some leaders have just felt burnout. Typically, 80% of the work that is done in the church is done by 20% of the church. So people are exhausted, not feeling cared for. There's shame and self-contempt that comes with that because they weren't given permission just to rest. There's a lot of reasons there. Conversely, some, as I stated earlier, feel like they're underutilized. People, the church themselves, did not receive the gifts that these people had to bring and conversations were avoided. Mission, sometimes there's Mission avoidance altogether with the church. The church can feel like it's the mission, and we miss the call to do something outside of the church, to enter into hurting and difficult places of our world. Moral issues that's another reason. Affairs, abuses. The church feels just as divided as culture feels. It's judgmental, hip, hip, hypocrisy, shame. Again, there's a lot of reasons, a lot of opinions. I mean, sometimes it's just personal pain, loss, and suffering in life. You feel like you went through this pain and people weren't there. You feel like you go through this suffering and God wasn't there. God, you didn't show up. Why am I showing up? So as you consider this conversation, what do you think? Why is a church, faith, etc. seemingly less of a priority today? That's a question I'm going to ask the congregation. And it seems like you can't have a conversation like this without mentioning this idea of deconstruction. And deconstruction, and the greater term, deconstructionism, uh, has so many different definitions, so many different interpretations and follow-up qualifications that it's it's really hard to pinpoint what exactly it is. It has literary roots as well as philosophical roots. From a literary perspective, and this is probably an oversimplification, I admit that, but it, it comes to comparing different approaches to a text and its meaning. Uh, The philosophical emergence of deconstruction happened when there was an exploration of tensions and contradictions within a certain hierarchy, and that feels somewhat akin to what we experience when it comes to deconstruction in the church. Uh, Christianity Today, which is a great publication, said this, that regarding Christian faith, it gets more complicated. Uh, For some people, deconstruction means losing their faith altogether becoming atheists, agnostics, or spiritual but not religious nuns. For others, deconstructing means still believing in Jesus, but struggling with how religious institutions have failed. And there are also many for whom deconstructing means maintaining an ongoing commitment to an orthodox Christianity, as well as a robust commitment to the church, but without all the political, cultural baggage associated with evangelicalism. And as As I was writing my manuscript, and I mentioned this in the e-news, this is where I kind of felt like I went on an unhealthy, defensive rant. And I think it's good to be defensive for the right reasons. But I started talking about people's commitments and what that says about them, and I just realized, you know what? I myself have felt a desire for something more when it comes to church. I mean, I planted a church. And that means I left Ascending Church. But because I love the church so much, I wanted that process for even me being sent to be honest and honoring, grateful for the work that flood our sending Church did in my life and, and wanting to leave as, an, as a mutual blessing, wanting to leave as extended family. Still, there was a desire for something more, that there's something to be something more on the horizon as it comes to church, God, faith, and religion. It doesn't change what our faith is but there's something stirring in us and i think that's going on with a lot of people i think sometimes we can think through people who left as those people who are on the tertiary those who are on the outside maybe showing up here and there but what if it's the person what if the person closest to leaving rather is the person who's most involved those efforting to see something more to us meeting together and giving it their all before giving up it's a theory but but worth considering. We all have our reasons, but maybe the reason is that the status quo just isn't sitting right with our spirit. There is a sense of a wind of change coming, maybe for this generation, maybe for the next that we want to set up well. Historically, the church has experienced waves of change. What if God is doing something new that uncoincidentally reminds us of the old ways of Jesus? think that's something we have to think through. God may be doing something new that uncoincidentally reminds us of the old ways of Jesus. So as I sat with this message, and I sat with it longer than I've sat with other messages. I've never rewritten the night before. <laughs> Maybe I have. I probably have. But the question I'm considering, and it has some follow-up ramification, is as we follow Jesus together, What does our commitment entail that we may have forgotten? As we follow Jesus together, what does our commitment entail that we may have forgotten? And how can knowing these commitments help us when others, even us, feel like leaving? How can knowing these commitments, what our commitment entails, help us when others, or even we, feel like leaving? Again, it's a very complex conversation, but let's turn to scripture. Our passions today deals with the costly call of following Jesus. And on its own, it's a very short passage that can seem somewhat vague. That's why I think it's important to look at what happens prior to this passage as well as what happens after it. This is always a good principle when you're trying to understand a verse or a passage of Scripture. It's always good to know, hey, what are the bookends of this passage? What What's leading into this passage and what's coming out of it? So I'm going to read uh, the midpoint portion of Matthew 8. Our, our passage today that we're going to focus in on are verses 18 through 22, but I think I need to read 14 to 27. So would you uh, please stand wherever you are out of respect for God's word? If you're listening in your car, you can obviously stay seated. Matthew 18 verses 14 to 27. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. She got up and began to wait on him. And when evening came, Many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was what, this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. See, that's the first book in. Our passage today. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Here comes the back book end of the passage. Then he got into a boat, and his disciples followed him. And suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake, so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. He replied, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the wind and waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the wind and waves obey him. So that's a large portion of scripture. where We're going to be looking mainly at the center section, but I just want to note some themes surrounding this passage as we explore those verses 18 to 22. First, in verses 14 to 16, we recognize where Jesus' authority goes. It goes to painful places. He spent the evening healing others, exercising demons. And then you hear this passage about the costly call to follow Jesus, and then what follows is, for those who follow Jesus, awe and wonder Jesus' authority. For those who decide to stay and go with him to hard and difficult places for healing, they experience awe and wonder from Jesus' to authority. They see God in action. So understanding those bookends, God going into hard places and the back end, experiencing the wonder and awe as we go with Jesus, let's read this middle section again. Verse 18, when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go bury, go and bury my father. Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. So as we follow Jesus together, the question is, what does our commitment entail that we may have forgotten? And the first first of two points today is simply this, that we are committing to enter into dark places of hurt and pain. We are, enter- we are committing to entering to places of hurt and pain. I said dark places. It's not necessarily dark places, though it is hurting places. Jesus spends the evening again exercising demons and, and healing the sick. So there's a prophetic fulfillment happening here where he takes up the infirmities and bore diseases. And then, as we look at our passage today, the costly call to follow Jesus, it says in verse 18, when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross the other side of the lake. To do what? Well, to enter into hurting places in order to bring healing. Then a teacher of law said, "'Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go.'" And this is what I want to focus on. This first disciple, this teacher of law, is excited and it's seemingly overzealous. He sees what's happening. He's probably having a great time, seeing what God can do, and he's excited. And, and instead of Jesus embracing this enthusiasm, he brings a sobering and surprising response. He says, foxes and dens, I'm sorry, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. So what is Jesus saying here? Well, Jesus is simply saying this, that the mission, the seeking of the kingdom of God, it's hard. We're not here for the benefit of popularity or relevance or praise. We are called to enter into dark and difficult and hurting places. This is our commitment as followers of Jesus. And how is this commitment then helpful? Well, it reminds us that what we do here as God's church matters. It reminds us that we are called to enter into dark places. That's our purpose. And if if we're not entering into dark and difficult places, both in the world and in our lives, there's something off. If the church avoids painful places, we quickly become irrelevant and unnecessary. And, And part of meeting together on a Sunday as a people is to celebrate the God who sustains us as we seek to enter into dark places. To be replenished by God. But it's not Relegated Sundays. We do that each and every day. But as we consider our church and our mission, this is why we have a focus on safe families. We want to be clear that we exist for those who are hurting. How else is understanding this commitment helpful? It reminds us that God meets us in our pain. All of us come to Jesus not because we have it together, but because we are needy, because we have pain, because we are tired. To be human is to be needy. And this teacher of the law was likely somebody who didn't recognize their own need. He likely wanted to be like Jesus and exercise his Messiah complex. He wanted to take Jesus' teaching and add it to his library knowledge. He didn't recognize his own pain. We gather together because we're hurt and we trust that Jesus meets us in our pain. And hopefully we can create a safe space where we can meet one another in our pain. And as we think of others who want to leave, church, God, etc., it's an opportunity for us to enter into their pain. Again, the principle is connection before correction. To say to them, oh, you want to leave? This sounds really painful. Tell me more. Another three-word way of saying I love you is to say tell me more. Can't force it, but we can ask permission. We commit as followers of Jesus to enter into painful places. What else does our commitment entail that we may have forgotten? Well, this one's huge. We're committed to Jesus being our source of life and not anything or anyone else. As we consider meeting together as a church and following God, we're committing that Jesus alone really is our source of life and not anything or anyone else. The paradox of meeting together is that we are here for Jesus and everything else is subsidiary to that, falls below that. And and that's what we see in the second passage. if The first disciple is overzealous. The second one is seemingly reluctant. Scripture says, another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Now, backstory is this, that for thousands of years, it's been Jewish tradition to pray the Shema every morning. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. And, And nothing within the... Judeo worldview takes precedence over this. Well, actually one thing does. According to the teaching of Jesus' days, when someone's father dies, they have such a strong obligation to give their father a proper burial that it takes precedent over everything else, even reciting this simple prayer in the morning. So when this man said, let me first go bury my father, who likely wasn't dead or even dying yet, Jesus says one of the most shocking things. He says, let the dead bury the dead. Meaning, Jesus is saying this is meaning is that if you are alive, your loyalty to me must surpass any family bonds, friendships, and earthly desires. Jesus is saying that if you are living, your loyalty to me must surpass everything else. Family bonds, friendships, desires, wants, comforts, sometimes even what we seem to think are needs. And so how is this, how is understanding this commitment helpful? Well, it's helpful to remember that Jesus is the only one who actually fulfills our longings, that we are here for the one who's here for us, that Jesus said himself in John 10.10, that he's the one who brings life and life to the full, just as if no vacation, no drug, no sexual experience, no praise, no accumulation, no approval can fulfill us. There's also no sermon, no group of Christian friends, no leadership opportunity, not even any retreat that would ultimately fulfill us apart from the greater privilege and honor of being with Jesus and knowing deeply the wonder of his love. And that leads to this reality, that there is a crucible that we all have to pass through when it comes to being the church. It's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German theologian during World War II, Calls the wish dream. We each bring a, a wish dream into the church. And he writes this in his seminal work, Life Together. Innumerable times, a whole community is broken down because it sprung from a wish dream. The serious Christian set down for the first time in a Christian community is likely to bring with him or her a very definite idea of what Christian life together should be and to try to realize it. But God's grace speedily shatters such dreams. Just as surely as God desires to lead us to a knowledge of genuine Christian fellowship, so surely must we be overwhelmed by a great disillusionment. Disillusionment with others, with Christians in general, and if we are fortunate, with ourselves. We are committed to Jesus being our source of life. See, Bonhoeffer rightly writes that our wishes and expectations become a hindrance to true Christian community, i.e., being the church. And when our love for these expectations is more than our love for Christ and his people, we will, we can destroy community. But the death of this wish stream is an opportunity for great hope. Bonhoeffer goes on to say that the very hour of disillusionment with my brother or sister becomes incomparably salutary, which means beneficial, because it so thoroughly teaches that neither of us can live by our own words and deeds, but only by the one word and deed, which really binds us together. That's Jesus, by the way. When the morning mists of dreams vanish, then the dawns the bright day of Christian fellowship. We are here for Jesus. And without that focus, many will move on. We would probably move on. One of my first reflection papers that I wrote in seminary was about people, a person who left our church but left it for another church. And I think that's part of this conversation. There's obviously a lot of uh, aspects of this conversation but it's one to note on about people being a part of this community and moving on. And this person was somebody that I cycled. They were a leader of mine. And actually I introduced him to his fiance, he, he and his wife decided, or he and his fiancee decided that they needed to move to a church that was more fit for their needs as a couple. And I introduced them. I put them in leadership. And before even the sparks flew, they were leading with with one another and other people in ministry. And when that happened, I was floored. It was the first time this reality came so close to me. And I met with him. And I talked to him, and he was determined that the space, that church, was not for him. And I was in shock. Again, it was my first time in ministry, and since then I've had many conversations like these in my 15 years of ministry. And when people's minds are made up to go to another church, I'm reminded that it's Jesus who brought us together. I focus on Jesus I don't do it perfectly, but I try to. I remind us that Jesus who brought us together, and I want to push those people to Jesus. And if that means they need to find Jesus in another church, I, I, I want to bless them. And I want to consistently and faithfully be Jesus to those people, so that they know they have someone, me, in their corner, whether they are here or not. I don't want to hold on to them too tight. Now I don't do this perfectly, but it is a goal. And Jesus meets me when I I lean on him to be him. My goal is for you to know that I'm in your corner like Jesus and that Jesus is in your corner. I think when people want to leave the church altogether, they need somebody who's in their corner and loves them and loves them so much that they will enter into that pain, connection before correction, but also challenge them, guide them, to how disastrous leaving Jesus will be for them, that it will lead to more pain. Because I love you, I want you to know that leaving the church, leaving God and Jesus, this is a painful journey that God doesn't want for you. Because Jesus is the source of love and life, we wanna meet them in their pain and challenge them not to walk away from the source of healing. That's our commitment that you don't wanna forget. We're committed to Jesus being our source of life and not anything or anyone else. So, how is understanding this commitment helpful if and when we are tempted to leave the faith altogether? Well, if I haven't commented on it already, I think one of the reasons we're leaving church or faith altogether is because we've failed to live like God is alive. There's beauty in the passage following this short passage about the call to follow Jesus. When the disciples on the boat say this simple statement, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. I think people leave the church because they feel like we've relegated God to sermons or activities, even to the Bible. When the truth is God is living and active in the room and we long to be reminded of this truth. We long to experience, I think better word is to know the wonder of God. Look at what God is doing now. Look at what God's up to. and To to take a risk and to speak this in other people's lives, I think this is what God is up to. I believe God has this word for you. And if this word is humble as we speak it in other people's lives, and if it's in love, I believe it's a good gift that we can give people to have to discern, to name the wonder of God in real time. This is what God's up to. God is alive and active. And when people know God is alive, active, Around their lives and importantly in their lives, it becomes magnetic. They want to stay. I mean, have you ever had somebody share a word with you in love about the presence of act and activity of God in your life? I mean, what was that like for you? Take a moment to think about that. When someone says, this is what I believe God is up to, this is what God's doing, Whew. to be in a community like that, there can't be anything more sticky than that. Recognizing Jesus as a source of our love and and then naming the work of God in real time. See, those who leave the faith still need Jesus. And as the passage reveals, Jesus is not forcing anyone to stay. He invites us to stay, he challenges us to stay, but he will not force us to stay. His invitation comes with a freedom that comes with love. A God who love risks that his love is not received. And not held on to. But don't leave that love. I want to challenge you to stay with Jesus. And I want to challenge you to challenge others to stay with Jesus. All of us need the unforceful hand of a loving disciple, a guide. And this happens well when we enter into the dark places of others and push them towards Jesus as a source of love and life. There's next steps for this conversation. The next step simply is this, to be honest about your struggles with faith, religion, and God. That may look like journaling, sharing with a loved one, meet with a leader at the water's edge, meet with me, but don't ghost us. Let's have a conversation. I think a great next step is to set up a weekly or daily calendar alert to check in on somebody who may be struggling with faith, may be isolating. Then lastly, we want to be a people who enter into the dark places of community. Join a care community. Help give respite to those who need rest and time to recover and to look ahead. Let's pray.